Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. Should anyone require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program for caregivers' care coordination for your loved one living with cancer and other health problems. And this is part five of Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. Now, we know that caregivers are so important and in terms of also care coordination. So that's going to be the focus of our program today. And we have this program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have actually a lot of you on the call today. There are 468 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants as well, interesting enough, um, from Canada, Egypt, Japan, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Sweden, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So really a bit of a global call actually as well, and um, so a lot of you on the call today. You may not be able to see each other, but you're all there listening. And during the Q&A, we'll, we'll uh, appreciate hearing your questions as well. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, and author, research, in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing the role of caregivers in care coordination for people living with cancer and other health problems in the context of COVID-19. He's also going to be addressing social distancing and use of technology and tips for communicating with the healthcare team about care coordination and telehealth appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Hello, everybody, and thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, we, uh, if we were wearing hats, we would tip them to the caregivers all over the world because any of us who have been caregivers to a family member or friend who are ill know how challenging and rewarding and difficult uh, it can be. Um, many of you, many people are on uh, listening to this program live, but because we're also recording for a podcast that could be listened to later on, it would be impossible not to note that we're recording on uh, the end of April in 2020 in the midst of the coronavirus um, epidemics that has reached around the world. And um, the complications of caregiving get even more complicated during these times and we're trying to touch on some of the basic information as well as that specific to um, these times. And we hope that the experience that we get now, we will inform and maybe uh, actually improve what we do in the future. Um, the uh, information that we get from the World Health Organization and from the Centers for Disease Control in the United States um, changes um, 
very quickly. It is a moving target. And what we say today, uh, to the best of our knowledge, is correct today, but may change as the patterns um, of the viral illness uh, change as the weeks go by. But we do know that uh, the COVID-19 epidemic has changed the way cancer treatment is provided. Um, in, in cancer, as in any other illness, we always try to balance the benefits versus the risks of um, of treatment. We want to do things that will help people get better, not make them sicker. Um, and now that 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 uh, equation has changed a bit because a lot of the things that we are ha having done, we're doing consistently uh, up until just a few weeks ago have had to be put on hold. So uh, scheduling surgeries, for example, a number of surgeries um, because of health code have been postponed. Um, anything that was considered elective has been postponed. It's hard to think that cancer surgery is elective in any way, but there are some surgeries that may be able to to be put off at least a little bit uh, to avoid the, inf uh, the uh, a viral infection happening during or after surgery. Um, if you're in the process of trying to arrange surgery, please be patient. The surgeon may be reassigned in their facility um, to non-cancer duties. Uh, and their staff may actually be reassigned and the call back may, or email back may not be as quick as usual. Um, if you're about to schedule chemotherapy, um, we'll talk a little bit about telehealth visits, but a number of chemotherapies uh, have been changed at least temporarily so that we're relying more on oral chemotherapies rather than infused chemotherapies, infusions at home rather than um, in the hospital or at an infusion room where many people congregate. And many the oral chemotherapies uh, may be applicable to your situation, may not be, and that's an individual case-by-case -case, decision between you, your family, and uh, the oncologist. If you do to get radiation, you may find that the number of visits to the radiation center may have to be um, curtailed. It's important to remember that it's not the number of visits you make, but the total amount of radiation that you get. And that is trying, the radiation oncologists are trying to do that with a minimum number of visits for safety and for effectiveness. Um, we also, if if someone is known to have uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus, they're often scheduled for at the end of the day so that another patient doesn't go into the room uh, before it is fully cleaned. Our rooms are fully cleaned anyway, but and this is an extra special precaution. So uh, lots of things in cancer treatment are um, are changing. Being a caregiver um, puts a whole layer of responsibilities onto someone because we're told that we need to stand six feet apart, but being a caregiver, that is practically impossible if you're helping somebody get out of bed, get to the bathroom, get dressed, even helping somebody in and out of a shower or a bath or helping with a sponge bath, uh, being six feet away just is not practical. So we ask that people rely on their cancer treatment teams to find out exactly what kind of personal protective equipment they need to get. We realize that in some areas that still may be short and substituting 
um, some non-traditional personal protective equipment may be fine. Again, that varies from person to person, situation to situation, and make sure to discuss that with your cancer treatment team. The uh, challenges that happen during um, coordination are also um, changed somewhat. Uh, keeping a schedule for the patient. Which visits do you, which, which visits, where are they? How do you get there? Where do you park? Uh, what papers do you need to bring? What records do you have to have in advance? What are the copays? What are the deductibles? Who's in network, out of network? All of those things for people that have insurance or for folks that don't have insurance. Where is a facility in your area that will see you even without insurance? Um, it, may be, it may be harder to get the information, harder to schedule the appointments, or harder to get some information. Uh, but we do know that um, in previous times, maybe up until a generation ago, if someone um, found that they have cancer, they'd be often, most often admitted to the hospital. And all of these, uh, the tests and the treatments would be either beginning or beginning and completed during an inpatient stay. That's no longer the case. So people are finding that they're going to multiple offices and different places to get their care. Um, we hope that that is coordinated between the specialists. We need to, um, we, we think that that's often better done in a system with coordinated care where uh, the specialists are on the same medical record so they can easily access what's happened um, in other offices, avoid duplicating blood tests or imaging studies, but that is all, not always possible and it becomes an extra burden of the caregiver to bring information back and forth between the offices. Um, it used to be that we would walk into a pharmacy, leave a prescription, and go back and pick up the medication, and now we find that that is a little more complicated. Um, those of us with insurance may only be able to use certain pharmacies. We may need to send away for medication. Some may come from a variety of places, and between um, uh, patients and families and the pharmacist is a pharmacy benefits manager and an insurance company who may dictate exactly how this happens even more complicated today when we're told that we need to be concerned about wiping off packages that come through the mail and through uh, express services. Um, it, it's a little more difficult or a lot more difficult than, than before, um, but we do find that the uh, help desks and insurance companies, once you're able to get through, um, can actually um, give you good information Often, a number of insurance companies have uh, oncology nurses who um, man the phones for cancer patients because they have a higher level of experience about treatment. Um, taking medications uh, and being on schedule uh, is difficult uh, under best of circumstances. Um, if somebody is caregiving from afar, we are going to talk about using our electronics to be our friend rather than our foe. They really can help. And our other speakers will you know, talk about this in, in more detail. But using uh, our electronics uh, with timers and calendar reminders and alarms um, can be extremely helpful. Uh, reminding somebody who is less electronically connected just with a phone call may be uh, the best way to go about it. We have pill containers that can actually have alarms in the in the caps, um, a number of different trays to be able to put out medicine in advance. There are a number of things that can be helpful. 
Um, what you also may find is that your first appointment is a telehealth appointment. Most of us are not familiar with this and not used to it, but it's happening more and more in oncology. Um, from what I've seen over the last few weeks, uh, an initial visit with the medical oncologist, surgical oncologist, or radiation oncologist often starts with a telehealth visit where you are on the telephone or on a video link through your computer or your smartphone or your tablet um, with the um, oncologist specialist uh, going over your history, what you've been through before, a number of things, uh, pieces of information that are often collected in the um, first part of the visit, your family history, who's had cancer, what medications do you take, what over-the-counter supplements do you take, um, have you had uh, any radiation before, many, many questions that are specific to cancer. And a lot of that is collected and discussed in the telehealth visits. Um, again, from what I have been seeing, um, the initial consult is not completed over the phone. Obviously, doing a proper physical exam is pretty much impossible over the phone. Um, so the, a lot of the information that would happen in person is started on the telehealth visit and finished um, for an in-person visit um, the treatment the treatment decision, unless it's changed by the physical exam, may actually be discussed on the tele on the telephone telehealth visit as well. Um, please keep in mind that um, because we're all struggling with how to be most effective, if a telehealth appointment comes with a bunch of forms to fill out, it's a lot of busy work, yet another burden. But please. Fill those out. A lot of this information that would be asked orally can be summarized on the forums, and that will make the telehealth visit um, uh, more personal because more time will be spent discussing the individual needs of the um, patient, uh, finding out what kind of treatment is advised rather than collecting a lot of history. Um, these are the kinds of things we've been struggling with now. Being a caregiver means that you're involved in all of these things, coordinating all of these things, making sure that things don't fall through the cracks, as well as providing hands-on care. It is difficult, but there are people to help you, at least guide you, and provide you with information that comes from experience. So uh, these are the these are the this is the nature of the kinds of things we're dealing with now, um, and I will turn this call over to Dr. Messner and our other speakers. Thank you, everyone. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Fleischman, for really setting the tone for today's program, putting it in the context, and um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. And our next speaker is Dr. Aaron Kent. Dr. Kent is associate professor, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, UNC. She's with the Department of Health, Policy, and Management, Gillings School of Public Health, full member, UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Kent will be addressing what research tells us about caregivers, including long-distance caregivers, and coordinating your loved one's care and follow-up appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kent. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's wonderful to be here over the phone with you all today, um, and I'm just very honored to be part of this esteemed panel. Um, I just want to reiterate um, that I am a researcher um, and, a, and an associate professor in the Gillings School of Public Health at UNC Chapel Hill, and most of my work has been focused on um, both cancer patient outcomes, including quality of life and the impact that cancer has had on families and cancer caregiving, but I am not um, a clinician. 
And so I don't have experience providing direct medical or psychosocial care. My role today is, is, is just as what uh, Dr. Messner said, which is to tell you about what the research tells us about being a family caregiver for someone with cancer, cancer and or cancer and, and other chronic conditions. And I'll start by just uh, mentioning that um, a, re uh, a recent survey by Cancer Care actually indicated that the impact that cancer can have on family was the number one concern of cancer patients, just telling us how critically important it is that we pay attention to our cancer patients' families in addition to the patients themselves and really think about cancer as a family affair. So what do I mean by caregiver? I think it's important to start with definitions because that term gets thrown around a lot and sometimes it means to people um, a family member and sometimes it might mean an actual, an, an actual healthcare provider. Um, so what I mean by caregiver is people who um, are maybe spouses, partners, children, um, they could be relatives, friends, neighbors, coworkers, they're people who help care recipients, someone with cancer, meet their basic day-to-day -day needs, sometimes what we refer to as activities of daily living, and those can um, include tasks like feeding, dressing, bathing, and moving around, but they can also include um, what we call instrumental tasks like shopping and paying bills and socializing. Um, tasks that caregivers help with can also include what we call medical or nursing tasks like administering medication, changing bandages, helping with things like infusion ports and catheters. And caregivers often help accompanying loved, by accompanying loved ones to their uh, medical appointments, by communicating and coordinating with healthcare providers, and sometimes advocating for services. So I recognize that many people might not refer to themselves as caregivers. Um, they often say that caregivers are as caregivers do, um, and this is not necessarily a term that resonates with all. It is a term, however, that is helpful for healthcare providers and researchers to use in some contexts because it helps us um, identify and recognize all of the critically important ways in which someone might support a loved one with a serious health problem. So what does the research tell us about caregiving? Well, first off, it's difficult to estimate just how many people are serving as in the role of caregiver at a given time here in the U.S. or certainly globally. Um, especially for patients um, with a specific kind of cancer or um, cancer and, and other chronic conditions. And this is partly because caregivers are helping care for loved ones with multiple health problems or chronic conditions, as I just said. Um, the National Alliance for Caregiving conducts a survey of caregivers nationwide once about every five years. Their um, newest estimates are coming out this year, which is great. But their most recent estimates come from a report published in 2015 and that report states that approximately 43.5 million adults are currently serving as a caregiver for a loved one with a serious medical problem. Um, and of those 43.5 million, um, they estimate that about 2.8 million are serving, for, are serving as a caregiver for someone with cancer as the main problem. But that's probably an underestimate of the total burden of caregiving for, um, for those who are caring for someone with cancer because it, it, it it, the survey asks people to just choose one condition. So what we can say, though, is that there are thousands of people right now who fit the role of caregiving for someone with cancer and, um, and especially those with other chronic um, health problems as well. In fact, um, Rosalind Carter, former first lady and a real caregiving champion who, who actually formed the Rosalind Institute of Caregiving, um, has a famous quote saying that there are four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need a caregiver. 
And that's a, a quote that I um, have actually tacked up next to my desk as a reminder. And we know that there are many challenging aspects of being a caregiver, particularly those um, who are caregiving for more than 20 hours a week or helping with several of those activities of daily living that I previously mentioned. Um, the, again, the recent National Alliance for Caregiving study found that caregivers um, who are caring for cancer patients um, often spend about an average of 32 hours per week providing care, and that's, that's self-reported from caregivers, which is more uh, than those who care for recipients with other health problems, so health problems other than cancer. And cancer caregiving tends to be more episodic, meaning not as long-lasting and, and intense than caregiving for those um, who have other health conditions. Uh, the same report also uh, states that not everyone reports feeling like they had a choice in taking on the responsibility. Um, it's, it's a bit complicated because certainly obligation and a sense of purpose can go hand in hand. Um, but we do know that perceiving that one had no choice in, in taking on the role can contribute to um, feelings of stress and strain. So meaning making throughout the caregiving experience is very, very important to do. So. Um, what that can mean is that it's important that when, when one is taking on this kind of role, that it needs to be viewed through the lens of adjustment. So if you're becoming a caregiver, um, it might be important to take some time to process what is happening and what this actually means for your life and schedule. Setting and revisiting goals with your loved one is critical. And caregiving does not have to be, nor should it be, a singular endeavor. There are, all, there are ways to marshal support, particularly now, uh, during COVID-19 from additional family members and friends, and there are tools, um, and there are certainly plenty of digital tools or online tools to help organize requests, tasks, schedules, and expectations. So now more than ever, um, this is the time to activate your village. And it's important to include in that village the healthcare team. I'm going to talk a little about long-distance caregiving, and then we'll talk about um, sort of communicating and coordinating with the healthcare team. So I was asked to address caregiving at a distance, and this is a topic really near and dear to my heart as I'm currently supporting my, my mother who lives in California. Um, I'm, I'm in North Carolina, and, um, and she's managing some health problems, and I know how, how hard it can be caregiving from a distance. Um, there are many ways to care for a loved one um, with cancer from afar. Um, many of these strategies do rely on technology. Um, that's, it's, it's, it needs to be, as Dr. Fleischman mentioned, um, a tool that we, that we use to the, to the best of its abilities, or tools that we use to the best of, of, of their abilities and potential. So video conferencing, for example, um, which is becoming more and more the norm these days. Your platforms like Zoom, Skype, FaceTime can be really helpful in terms of um, not just checking in face-to-face -face with a loved one, but also attending visits, um, uh, taking pictures and texting and, and emailing of, of, medic of medicines, for example, can help answer questions. So asking a loved one to take a picture of their pill bottles can actually be very, very helpful. I'm setting up supportive services, whether they're formal and paid or informal, um, in terms of like getting community or neighborly help. Um, for example, arranging friends to provide um, companionship, and that can be through a window, it can be through a video conferencing, it could be just plain over the phone. Bringing over meals through something like a meal train, um, helping with house or yard work or when it's safe. Um, uh, it can be very helpful. There are some digital online tools to help caregivers organize their care. Sites like Caring Bridge and Lots of Helping Hands can actually be created by a primary caregiver or someone who's a friend or um, a helper to that caregiver. It doesn't have to necessarily fall on the primary caregiver's shoulders. Um, so these kinds of sites, again, help with things like arranging meal delivery, 
um, could help in some cases. And now it is a bit more co complicated with social distancing, but um, with with childcare um, and and in, in some cases also with taking someone to and from medical appointments. So if you are a distance caregiver helping to support someone. Um, Really establishing systems like this can be is, is really critical, and it is something that can be done um, to a large extent through through distance. And in terms of communicating according to the healthcare team, I mean, I think caregivers can play a very significant role here. Things like appointment scheduling, understanding medication regimens and treatment plans, um, even helping manage and monitor symptoms and side effects by like daily check-ins. Can, um, these things are, are difficult um, for patients to do themselves, especially when they're not feeling well. And so this is where caregivers can be um, extremely, uh, extremely helpful. Um, having someone who is able and willing to come to medical appointments, even virtual or telehealth appointments, just to listen and take notes can be enormously helpful. Caregivers can ask about recording conversations, um, and there are ways to do that even over telehealth. It's important to ask and talk to the healthcare team first before we're doing this. Um, and it's really important to raise um, questions and concerns with the healthcare team. In fact, research has suggested that um, the, the National Alliance of Caregiving Report itself suggests that, um, that only half of, of caregivers in that survey reported having discussed their loved one's care needs with providers and um, only a third discussing their own self-care needs and in addition, about only 40% or actually say 40% reported performing complex medical nursing tasks without any prior training or preparation. So it's important to be the squeaky wheel here and ask questions and ask for help. And there are many ways to assist your loved ones with decision making um, about treatment, about whether to go ahead and start a treatment regimen or wait. Um, there is always new and evolving research about the best ways that clinicians can help cancer patients and their families with making decisions. Some of this is categorized as a heading of shared decision making, which is a key component of patient-centered healthcare, and is a process where clinicians, patients, and caregivers work together to make decisions, to select tests and treatments, and the best care plan based on the best clinical evidence available that balances both risks and expected outcomes with patients' own preferences and values. So just, I'll leave you with this. There's always choice when it comes to cancer treatments, and it's important to balance being patient and listening, by being active, by advocating for your loved ones to the best of your abilities. And with that, um, thank you so much for listening. I'm really honored to be here today, and I'm happy to either provide further resources as needed, and I'll go ahead and hand it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kent. That was so informative and really, um, really uh, spells out uh, what we know about caregivers to this date and, and to wonderful research. Thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Domna Antonidis, and she is an attorney. She's a staff attorney with Legal Health New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAC. And she'll be discussing a range of topics, legal advocacy for caregivers, learning how to appeal insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and provider denials, and other resources, Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, and veterans' benefits. All very important topics. And so it's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Antoniaitis. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I'm so pleased to be part of this workshop with Cancer Care. As we all know, it's a difficult time now with a lot of uncertainty, and it's, it's really wonderful to have so many people on this call. 
I'll be referring to you or yours when discussing many of these topics, but I do know that many of you on this call are caregivers of family and friends. So I'm going to first discuss insurance appeals. If you have computer access, then it is helpful, actually very helpful, to create an online account so that you can easily access necessary documents and communicate with your insurance company. This applies if you have a private or government insurance policy. If you're a caregiver, then it's also very important that the person with cancer signs a HIPAA form, which will allow you to communicate with the insurance company and healthcare providers, even if they can't participate on the call. The most important advice I can give is to read a copy of your summary of benefits, which breaks down your cost sharing and basics about your policy, and to get a copy of your full insurance policy, also known as your certificate of coverage. This outlines your benefits, any coverage limits or exclusions, prior authorization requirements, and the appeals process. The reason that this is important is because health insurance is essentially a contract. You or your employer agrees to pay a set premium, participate in cost sharing, and follow the contract guidelines. In return, your health insurer agrees to cover certain services in your policy and those required by law. Also, public policy overrules health insurance plan language. Due to the unique nature of health insurance, there are certain requirements mandated by the law that you are entitled to, even if your health insurance policy says otherwise. For example, consider oral parity, which means that your insurance will cover oral chemotherapy at the same level as IV chemotherapy. If your state mandates coverage for oral parity, then it doesn't matter if your policy specifically excludes oral parity because that conflicts with the state law and the state law will overrule that part of the policy. So I am going to pause for a moment to emphasize this since it is very relevant, especially in this current environment. While your insurance policy is usually the guide on what is or is not covered, the law or current government policies can often supersede the language of the policy. The reason this is especially relevant is because there may be a new law for the next few months, which for example allows unlimited televisits, even when a policy may have previously excluded them or had a limitation, or there may be a rule or regulation waiving in-person appointments for certain refills um, and things like that. In discussing health insurance appeals, it's also important to know that there are different types of insurance plans. Each type can be very different and subject to different laws. The type of plan you have is going to determine the type of laws and rules that apply regarding coverage, eligibility, and appeals. Some plans only follow federal requirements, while others also have to follow state law as well. This is an important distinction, again, because some states do have more consumer protections that you may be, may be able to utilize should you need to appeal a denial. Your insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefits, called an EOB, for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the billed service, the amount paid by your insurance, and your required contribution. If your insurance denies the claim or only covers a certain portion, then the EOB includes the reasons for the denial. Health plans and insurance companies have to tell you why they've decided to, de to deny a claim and with very specific information. You also have the right to request a full copy of your insurance file prior to the appeal to see how they reached their decision, including notes made by the case handler, any internal guidances or guidelines that were used, and any, any reports by the insurance company doctor who reviewed your claim. If a claim is denied, it can help to email or call your insurer to get more information about the denial. Sometimes claims are denied for administrative reasons that are easy to fix. 
Make sure you keep track of your calls, emails, or letters, writing down the date and who you spoke with at your insurance company. If the matter cannot be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, then you can file an appeal directly with your insurance company. Make sure you read the reason the service is being denied, check your policy, and in your written appeal, document the reasons you disagree with the insurance company. Include medical records and a letter from your treating doctor. Be specific, especially when making a medical necessity denial. In your case, what are the factors unique to you which support why your doctor thinks the denied service is necessary? In the current environment, this is especially relevant when perhaps your doctor is considering um, risk benefits in regards to COVID-19 and may have used that to make a medical, uh, make a decision that he or she feels medically necessary for your circumstance. Your insurance company must conduct a full and fair review of its decision within 30 days. And if urgent, they must expedite this process. If you are worried that your insurance company is not complying with the law or the terms of the policy, then I often recommend that people file a complaint with their state insurance department, attorney general's office, or the Department of Labor. If your insurance company denies the appeal, then you will have the right to request an external appeal, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and an independent panel, no matter where you live and what type of health insurance you have. This means that independent medical professionals with no financial stake in the claim make the decision. If the external reviewer overturns your insurer's denial, your insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim. Pay attention to your time limits to file an appeal as they are very strict at guidelines, although again, in this time period, there will probably be some flexibility. The good news is, is that almost half of all denied claims that are appealed are reversed. The percentage for external review is even higher. So along with private health plans, either from employment or the marketplace or an individual uh, policy, people often access insurance through Medicare or Medicaid or if you're a veteran through the VA, uh, the Veterans Administration. Medicare and Medicaid are both government-sponsored health insurance. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicaid is a federal, uh, federal state partnership. Eligibility rules for Medicaid are established by each state and vary depending on where you live. So it is important to know your state Medicaid requirements, which you can find on your, your state's uh, local Medicaid page. Both Medicare and Medicaid have an appeal process, but it's very different from private insurance. Medicare sends out a quarterly summary notice of claims, and the appeal time limit starts to run from the receipt of this notice. However, they may also send a separate denial for requested service. This notice will provide appeal deadlines. Medicare has multiple levels of appeals and the appeal time limits vary depending on the level. In the Medicare appeals I have handled for clients, I find them to be very helpful when I call for a status, but they don't send out a lot of correspondence about the appeal, so you do often have to stay on top and call often. And again, in this case, it's important to have a, a signed HIPAA form if you're a caregiver advocating on behalf of a, a, a family member. With Medicaid, it's important to actually check your state laws which govern Medicaid appeals. Oftentimes, uh, there may be certain distinctions if you have a Medicaid managed care plan in regards to how to appeal and how to request something called a fair hearing. There are two excellent resources, not only for Medicare appeals, but really everything about Medicare for eligibility to troubleshooting. The first is actually the Medicare website, medicare.gov. 
The other one is an organization called Medicare Rights, and they are at medicarerights.org. And often they are very, um, very knowledgeable and able in being able to assist with how to troubleshoot uh, certain problems or concerns with Medicare. I also want to briefly address services for our veterans. If you served in the military for even a day, you may be eligible for VA benefits. Coverage varies, and there are priority groups based on factors such as service-related disabilities, POWs, homebound vets, and many more. Levels of coverage and co-payments, including those for prescriptions, are complicated and vary. If you're a veteran, you can call the Veterans Health Administration to determine what you may be eligible for. There are also a growing number of legal service organizations which provide help to veterans. Here in New York, um, the New York Legal Assistance Group, which is where I work, does have a number of programs to meet the legal needs. And you can also reach out to your local bar association, which may provide referrals for the help you need. So I also want to mention a law called the Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, which is very important to caregivers, caregivers who are employed. FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months and for 1,250 hours in the last year. That comes to about 30 hours per week. If an employee qualifies, they're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. This is either for their own serious health condition or to care for a qualified, a care, a, a qualified uh, family member. FMLA can be taken in a block of time up to 12 weeks or intermittently on an as-needed basis. So, for example, if your family member has chemo every other Thursday, you can request intermittent FLA for every other Thursday and even Friday, up to the equivalent of 12 weeks. It can also be requested on an as-needed basis. Employee benefits, such as health insurance, must continue, although the employee must continue to pay any contribution made for the premiums. I would just also encourage people to check their local state Department of Labor, as well as the Federal Department of Labor, because there have been some changes um, in regards to COVID-19 and, and family leave for family members who are taking care of individuals um, who have COVID-19 or are impacted by the current pandemic. So I know this is a lot of information. I also know that it's often difficult to keep on top of insurance and other matters with so much else going on. With an understanding of what your rights and responsibilities are, as well as any help from your medical team and groups like Cancer Care, you'll be able to navigate any insurance issues or questions that come up for yourself or your family. Use all the resources available through an organization or your cancer center, and don't be afraid to advocate or to ask questions. Um, I do also want to briefly mention that there is an organization called the National Cancer Legal Services Network, which is a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal advice to help people with cancer. You can check to see what help may be available to you in your state, and the website is nclsn.org. So with that, I will turn this back over to Dr. Mesner. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ms. Antonatis. That was really outstanding and a lot of amazing information. I also want to remind all of you that after today's program, within probably about two days, you'll be getting an evaluation form. And that evaluation form is, we do, of course, appreciate your feedback to the program, but we also will include in that evaluation form any reference to any um, resource that was mentioned during the program, and we may add a few others as well. So um, when you get that um, uh, evaluation form, take a look at it because you'll be having, we'll give you all the 
um, many of the resources that our speakers, particularly Ms. Antonadis, mentioned, but other speakers as well have, have mentioned resources, and we'll be sure to include them for you so that you can easily access them. So that's just important for you to all to know. So, um, and moving right along, our next speaker um, is Ms. Georgie Kusak. And Ms. Kusak is an oncology nurse, and she is Director of Education and pa Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, nurse, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak is going to be addressing discussion of adherence, taking your pills on schedule, planning ahead with your pharmacist, lead time and refilling prescriptions, and planning for family, friends, weekends, special occasions, travel and holidays, social distancing, and technology visits. So the traveling might be via technology. Um, tips on choosing community and medical resources to improve your quality of life, accessing the resources you need for home care. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. And it's my pleasure also to speak to you about this topic. As an oncology nurse for 36 years, I can tell you that just speaking about the adherence to medications to get the best results from your treatment, it's essential that you take medications on time. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today and some of the things that you can do to help you to be able to adhere to your schedule. So many of today's cancer treatments are made in pill form, and because they're taken by mouth, sometimes people may not feel that they're as important as injections or infusions that are given in doctor's office. In truth, the cancer pills are just as important as a lot of other forms of treatment that your loved one might be receiving. And because they're responsible for taking these pills, staying on schedule with the treatment is important, whether you're at work or you're at home or with families and friends or on vacation. However, it's not always easy to do, and, you know, everybody knows that, you know, sometimes people miss medications during their treatment and the busyness of a typical day. Sometimes you will forget to take a dose, or maybe you decide to skip a dose because the side effects are causing you some problems. Um, another reason might be that over time they might feel better and think they don't need the medicine. However, again, it's important to know that the treatments are designed to work best when taken by the schedule that your doctor gives you for that. Cancer medicines given by mouth um, can relieve symptoms and destroy or stop cancer cells from growing. So when one takes the medication, it's absorbed by their body and the medication travels through the blood vessels to different parts of the body when they take it by injection or by mouth. And so when we talk about adherence, adherence is the key to getting the best results. So unlike cancer medicines that are given at the doctor's office, the pills, really um, puts you in charge of this treatment, and that means you're responsible for trying to remember what you can do to help you with that. So again, how does it affect the results of the treatment? The cancer pills themselves can release an active ingredient over a set period of time to keep a steady state of the medicine in, into your body. And a steady state means that it's going to help the pills to work correctly. It may be helpful to think of each dose as kind of refreshing the amount of medication that's in your body. And so when you skip a dose, the level of the medicine is lowered, and this sometimes can lower the medicine's success in treating the cancer. On the other hand, if you take doses too close together, you may start to get too much of the medicine in your body, and then the extra medicine can lead to more side effects. So for this reason, we tell you when you forget to take your pills, 
um, you know, it can be dangerous to take an extra dose, and so we want you to touch base with your healthcare provider or even get guidance from them in, you know, in the first place to figure out what you should do for that. Um, each pill has its own unique schedule. Some pills are taken once a day, others are taken several times a day, or only a few days during the week. So the pills can be prescribed at a week at a time, followed by a break, and then you go again for a couple weeks. So it's important to know what and have a discussion with your physician about um, dosing in general to make sure that, first off, you have the correct schedule and then to make sure that there's nothing else you need to know about the particular medicines. Some of the barriers, again, for taking the cancer pills, some of them need to be taken on an empty stomach. Some of them need to be taken with food. So, again, you need to be aware of that so that you know how to take your medicine um, and ask your healthcare provider to help you with that and to also help you to develop a schedule. You know, sometimes there, if you're somebody that has a problem taking medicines, you know, in um, taking medicines multiple times a day because you forget it all the time, there may be a way for you to be able to take it closer together. So you just want to always keep in touch with them for that. If you're an early morning riser or you do like to sleep in or stay up late, you just want to be able to plan ahead with your medicines to make sure that you're taking them at the appropriate time. Um, if you have other conditions such as high blood pressure or diabetes or other uh, conditions like that. Sometimes you may be drug juggling multiple medications, so there's a lot of strategies that we can use for that. And um, Stu mentioned a few of them earlier, but you want to make sure that first off you have a list of all of your medications. And so you want to write them down. You want to write down the time that you're supposed to be taking them so that you're aware. You also want to include any herbal or dietary supplements that you might be taking or vitamins, some of those over-the-counter prescriptions like Tylenol or um, cold medicine and things like that because sometimes you forget about those. So the list really should include the name of the medicine, the dosage, why you're taking it, the person that prescribed it to you. So that way when you go to get refills and different things like that, you're able to get in touch um, with the appropriate person for that. And then you want to work again with your cancer team just to make sure that that treatment schedule is working best for you. Um, going to one pharmacy makes a big difference also. So if you have a set pharmacy that you normally go to, a lot of times that pharmacy will be able to help you to, um, you know, the pharmacist can also talk to you about your medications and help you with your scheduling and things like that also. Um, if you have difficulty swallowing pills and then you have to swallow four big pills in one day, sometimes this can cause a little anxiety or re reluctance to take the medicine. So you want to talk to your healthcare team and see if there's a smaller pill available or if maybe this type of pill could be crushed. You do need to be careful with crushing pills um, because there are some pills that if they are extended release, you can absorb, you know, you can release a large amount of the drug at one time and you don't want to do that. So you just want to make sure which pills you can do that with. If you are able to crush the pills, you can put the pills in pudding or something to help you to get the pill down with that. Um, again, there are lots of tools out there. We talked a little bit about um, the telephone tools, but lots of tools to help you with adherence. There's telephones, there's computers and apps and different things. We'll talk a little bit more about that um, in a second. And there's also um, some medications that can be given in what we call blister packs or single-dose packages. So, again, if, whether you get yourself a pill box or whether you develop another method to help you adhere to the drugs will be important. But there's a wide variety of tools out there. There's actually even tools where you can um, you can set a reminder watch or a text message 
Uh, there's also pillboxes that have um, that will light up sometimes if you need to do that. Um, I haven't seen them myself, but I've heard about them where they will actually light up at the time that it's time for you to take your medications. When we talk about planning ahead with your pharmacist and kind of lead time on uh, refilling uh, prescriptions and things like that, you do want to be able to prepare in advance for that. So one thing to remember is that most medications can be filled, can be refilled in any pharmacy within the U.S. and that's called what they call a prescription transfer. Um, with that, you would so say you go away on a trip or something and you forget your medications, you can actually have um, the pharmacist at the you know the pharmacy where you're staying call your local pharmacist and they can do a prescription transfer if needed um, in a, you know, an emergent situation for that. So you will need to provide your insurance card. Um, you do need to also make sure that the insurance plan is participating because some of the insurance plan only, only participate with certain pharmacists. So it's um, sometimes helpful to select a pharmacy that's in the same chain that you are working with. Um, your physician can also, if you're going away, they can also give you a prescription in advance to take with you so that you'll at least have the prescription if you run out of pills or you need something. Again, sometimes insurance also puts limits on payment or filling for prescriptions, so you'll need to check that um, when you're checking about other things with your insurance company. If you're going away, again, we talked about making a list about a week before you leave. You want to focus on your meds that may expire while you're gone. And so preferably you want to refill the medicines at your home pharmacy, but sometimes they can, um, and sometimes they can give you a vacation override, meaning that they can give you a little extra medication to hold you over until you come back. Um, so again, work with your local pharmacist for that. If you are away, please remember the pharmacy might not normally stock the same meds as your home pharmacy, so they may need a few days to order medication. So you don't necessarily want to go there the day you're running out. You may want to give them a little leeway on that. Outside of the U.S., if you're traveling abroad, again, um, and none of us are traveling too far right now, but if you do travel outside of the U.S., um, you want to try to refill before leaving. If you think you are going to run out, you may want to pay um, for a small supply yourself to tide you over if they are unable to give you an override on that. You also want to realize that um, Medicaid may not be covered in all states or internationally, so you want to be aware of that. Um, you want to check with your legal system in the um, to see or in the country that you're going to because sometimes they may have restrictions also on what you can bring in and how much you can bring into particular con countries. So again, keep your medications in their original containers so that they can see what you're bringing in. If you are um, somebody that's on insulin or uh, a product where you need to carry syringes, you may want to ask your physician to provide you with a letter to be able to carry those. And then the other thing to remember is to avoid storing your medications in extreme temperatures if you're traveling. So if you're going on a long trip and you're driving, you don't want to leave um, your medications in extreme temperatures when it's very hot, very hot or very cold. And then tips on choosing community and medical resources to improve your quality of life. This is kind of um, different resources that you can access for home care. It can be difficult to know where to turn them, I and you've gotten a lot of information today about, you know, different services and, um, you know, different things you have to watch out for as a caregiver when you're helping out your loved one. And so um, Vicki will discuss some specific resources for cancer care. I'm going to tell you there are several resources available to assist you, and um, several 
you want to make sure you're going on a credible website to look for the information. And so if you go on either the National Cancer Institute or American Cancer Society or Cancer Care's website um, or one of your professional societies, you know, Leukemia Lymphoma Society that works with your specific diagnosis, those are usually the credible resources. And so you want to stick with those types of resources. You just don't want to Google anything and, you know, find things. So just be aware of that. Um, the NCI does have a list of over 100 different organizations that offer services for cancer patients on their website, and that's the www.cancer.gov website. There are services that are based on your cancer type. They're based on financial assistance. If you need advocacy help, if you need counseling assistance, any educational programs, support groups, um, peer buddy programs, uh, different referrals, um, referrals for health professionals. So there's a wide variety of, of resources that are available to you. You can also, and Carolyn, as Carolyn said, you'll be provided with all these resources at, at the end when you do your evaluation. But you can also call like the 1-800-4-CANCER number. So if you don't have access to a computer routinely to be able to look things up online, you can always call that number and they will provide you with the same list of resources. They can mail out things. They can, you know, um, communicate with you for that. Also, um, the American Cancer Society, Cancer Care, and the National Cancer Institute all have booklets on kind of Caregiving 101, which are great guides to assist new caregivers in navigating some of the challenges that you may face as a caregiver. So whatever resource you're going to utilize, I would say, again, to make sure it's a credible source, you want to also make sure that, um, you know, when I think about quality of life and I think about resources that you need, I would access these resources. But then I also think about resiliency and your ability to recover from difficult situations. And so, again, we talk about how do you take care of yourself when we look at quality of life overall. It can be very difficult sometimes when caring for a family member or a friend with cancer. It's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of different things that come up. You're doing all that organizing and coordinating and trying to help them out the best that you can, but you need to also take care of yourself. So you need to think about how will I adapt to this time of uncertainty. Um, thinking about activities for yourself to keep you rejuvenated, whether that be something like Again, maintaining that social distancing, um, wearing your mask, making sure you're doing your hand washing frequently, and maintaining that distance, taking time to read for yourself, taking a nap in the afternoon, practicing yoga or meditation. Um, there's some really good apps out there for um, relaxing and music. You can also do YouTube videos, um, piano playing or flute playing, um, different things like that. So there's a wide variety of resources that you can use. And not every resource is good for what's good for one person doesn't always work for another. But there's a wide variety of resources. You know, I like to I like to do a lot of Zooming and Skyping and different like, things like that with friends and family, especially during this time where we have the COVID-19 and you're not able to kind of see people in person. Um, it helps you to actually feel closer to them when you can at least talk to them and helps you somehow keep your sanity a little bit with that. But whatever it takes, please remember that you always need to be able to allow time for yourself so that you don't get burnt out because you're not going to be able to take care of your loved one if you um, are unable to, you know, kind of help yourself during this time. 
You may want to be there for specific conversations um, with your loved one's doctor. And so, um, you know, make time for those things, you know, schedule your schedules around that. But also remember that you may have other family members and friends that can also help out with that. And they are eager to assist, whether you have them bringing over food or bringing other things, you know, to help out or whether you um, have them coordinate appointments and things just to give you a little bit of break while you're trying to work through this. Your physicians, nurses, inpatient social workers, pharmacists are always available to assist you if you have a loved one that's in the hospital. Um, Vicki will talk a little bit about the other services that Cancer Care office offers for you also. And so with that, I want to thank you so much for providing me with this opportunity, and I'm happy to entertain any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Kusak. That was very comprehensive. It's really outstanding, and um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Victoria Puzo, and Ms. Puzo is an oncology social worker, and she is our as Cancer Care's online support group program manager. And Ms. Puzo is going to be addressing finding the practical help you need, copay foundations, federal, state, and local programs, time-saving self-care and advocacy tips for caregivers, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs, including the role of support groups. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Puzo. Thank you, Carolyn. Pleasure to be here. Um, I'm definitely going to be talking about a lot of topics, and um, I want to get through these so that we can get to our question and answer program, uh, part of the program. Um, and a little bit of what Georgie had already said, um, there are a lot of programs out there that might have some financial assistance available. Um, we all know that the financial costs associated with cancer are often overwhelming. Um, even with insurance, most people will have some sort of out-of-pocket costs for their medical care and prescriptions. Um, there are things called co-payment assistance foundations that can help. Um, there are several organizations out there that provide this type of service, including cancer care. Um, this particular type of funding fluctuates day-to-day, week-to-week. Um, it's best to reach out to organizations. Um, you can call Cancer Care or another one is the Patient Advocate Foundation, and they can provide some um, real-time referrals to programs who have funding um, at that specific time. Um, we also suggest with prescriptions, um, if you're having high co-pays, contacting the manufacturer of the drug, as a lot of those manufacturers also off offer um, financial aid programs. Um, and you may also uh, consider, as has been mentioned before, contacting your local Social Security Administration or offices for Medicare and Medicaid to determine if your loved one is entitled to any benefits, such as insurance, disability, food stamps, etc. Um, another thing that I often suggest is reaching out to your local United Way by dialing 211 or you can visit unitedway.org to find your local um, United Way phone number. Um, they're a, a local way to provide information about programs, financial assistance, respite care, um, food assistance, mental health services, and things like that. Um, you can also reach out to Cancer Care for information about financial assistance and referrals to programs in your area because we do maintain um, a database of, of resources for people. Um, moving on to some of the self-care tips for caregivers, um, it's really difficult as a caregiver to prioritize your own needs while caring for your loved one. 
but it's very important to implement some sort of self-care practices to avoid burnout. As we all know, the, the first rule is to put on your own oxygen mask before you assist anyone else. So only when we first can help ourselves can we effectively help others. Um, and this is uh, often a, a very forgotten thing um, to do as a caregiver. So um, we want to start by knowing some of the warning signs of burnout, which can be things like irritability, um, having like a, a short fuse, um, sleep issues, and forgetfulness. Um, also knowing what works for you, as Georgie had mentioned, um, some self-care activities work well for one person and might not work well for, for another person. Some people like maybe want to do quieter things like meditating or, um, you know, practicing deep breathing and others might want to do something more active like exercising or walking. But um, especially in these times of social distancing, some of the things that you can consider are things like exercise at home. There's a lot of great um, programs out there that are offering free um, fitness classes through um, the, their websites, um, going for walks, um, connecting with nature, of course, in a safe way right now, um, engaging in hobbies such as cooking or writing, reading, and um, of course, even watching TV can be part of self-care. Um, but I want I want people to take this on as um, not as a chore and maybe starting as setting small goals, even just 10 minutes of doing something that um, takes you away from your caregiving role um, can make a really big difference. Um, keeping in mind that things like eating right, getting enough sleep, or attending to your um, usual personal care, such as bathing and grooming, are all forms of self-care. So really even just taking a long hot shower and enjoying that time um, can be rejuvenating for you. And as um, Georgie had already mentioned too, um, self-care can be kind of on the go. Using technology and apps, we really do want um, to bring technology to our um, advantage and they have things for meditation, reading, they even have online coloring and exercise. Um, so those are the kind of things that you can do when you're sitting in a waiting room or waiting in the car for your loved one while they're in their appointments. Um, and if needed, you can try to schedule your self-care into your day so that you're more likely to take that time for yourself. So schedule it like an appointment, just like anything else. Um, another suggestion that I usually have is planning ahead for meals, because if you have healthy food ready to go, you're more likely to eat that rather than getting some kind of less nutritious fast food, um, which will end up making you feel sluggish. Um, try to pack some healthy snacks when you know you'll be at a hospital or doctor's office for a long period of time. You'll definitely feel better and more energized if you're able to eat well. Um, and we all know that um, you need part of you need to be part of a support team. You can't do all of this on your own. So getting help from family, friends, neighbors, or people in your community to helping with um, preparing meals, rides to appointments, or even just social visits can be um, really helpful. Um, during this time of social distancing, of course, um, you can even have friends and family drop off food or um, order delivery for you or even calling to check in with your loved one. Um, but just know that taking even one thing off of your plate can relieve some of your stress. And something else that's already been mentioned is suggesting to use shared calendars 
such as, as the Lots of Helping Hands My Cancer Circle and Caring Bridge to help coordinate your loved one's care. So definitely highlighting um, the importance of self-care here. Um, and then also um, think about thinking about the topic of advocacy. Um, caregivers often advocate on behalf of their loved one during treatment. Um, and if you don't have previous experience navigating a serious illness or advocating for a loved one, this can be a really daunting task. Um, you can start by educating yourself about your loved one's diagnosis, um, but be sure to utilize reputable sources, as was mentioned, um, things like cancer.org, cancer.gov, or cancercare.org. Um, so getting all that information from reputable sources is very important. Um, you can, it's also helpful to introduce yourself to your loved one's care team so that they know that you're part of your loved one's care, and be sure that proper forms are signed, such as HIPAA, to allow you to communicate with the medical team. I also suggest using an online portal if it's available through your loved one's provider. This is a convenient way to contact the medical team in between appointments. Um, you can ask them who the point person is on your loved one's team if you have a question or concern in between appointments. And also be sure to ask them what the best way is to reach them, whether that's through telephone, email, or the patient portal. And you can also um, uh, inquire about support services. They may have a social worker, a case manager, or patient advocate to help you along the way. Um, and lastly, we we've talked a lot today about managing your loved one's care and various aspects of that. And um, there is that importance of creating a support network. Um, and I just want to touch on how cancer care can be part of your support network. Um, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer, including caregivers. Cancer Care provides um, individual counseling, support groups, education programs like what you're participating in today, practical help, and some fin limited financial assistance for things like transportation, home care, and child care. All of our social all of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and our services are free of charge. Our social workers are trained in how a diagnosis affects a person and their family. Um, we're trained to help cancer patients and their caregivers tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, and social and emotional adjustment and um, helping to find new ways of coping with all of these things are a very important part of the healing process. Um, and asking for help as a patient or a caregiver um, or by joining a support group is a huge strength. Um, I know it can be really difficult to ask for help, but this is definitely the time where you want to reach out to whatever support might be out there. Um, joining a support group is a great way to connect with other caregivers who are going through a similar situation or experiencing similar challenges. And um, individual counseling provides a space that is just yours to voice concerns, navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. Um, these connections help lessen the isolation, especially during the time of um, social distancing that many um, caregivers experience during their loved one's diagnosis. And um, I want to highlight the fact that we offer our online support groups, um, which can be a great supplement right now when a lot of the hospitals and local organizations aren't holding their 
um, support groups in person. So our online support groups are always available as um, one of those services to connect with other caregivers. Um, if you're interested in any of Cancer Care Services, please call our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at cancercare.org. Um, it's very comprehensive and you can find a lot of information on support and all of our programs. And we've learned a lot today about our program. There's a lot to digest and get your arms around. Um, our social workers are here to help, and um, we want to help you um, with any questions you might have. Hopefully, we can address them today. Um, but if you have any further questions, you can feel free to call our Hope Line or visit our website. Um, thanks a lot for your attention, and I'll turn it back to Carolyn Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Souza. That was really excellent and outstanding and lots of resources for people and lots of ways to help people to really cope at this time. So thank you. And um, we now have time for questions, and I'm going to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board for the Q&A and, um, and to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I know there are many questions in queue, which we probably will not be able to take all of them, So, but we're going to take some. So if, um, if Norma, you could explain how to queue up for questions, that would be great. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And we have a question in front of our um, online participants, and I'm going to... Um uh, I give this question to Dr. Fleischman to begin with. Um, um, the COVID-19 adds to the stress of having cancer. How do you reassure patients and their caregivers of safe care? Well, uh, the reassurance comes from being aware of uh, current guidelines, and they change rather quickly, sometimes from day to day, as far as who needs to be in um, being treated in a facility, in an in infusion suite, in the doctor's office, in the radiation suite, who can be best treated at home, um, what kinds of precautions patients' um, families sometimes are excluded from treatment centers now, um, unfortunately, but what kinds of um, things patients and staff need to do in order to protect each other. You need your staff to be there, and you have to be virus-free to the extent possible. So being aware of what's happening, having your treatment in the least restrictive place um, may be uh, really the best ways to go about things until the rules change. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and... Um, uh, um, we have another question in front of our online participants, um, and um, I'm going to give this question to um, uh, Dr. Fleischman. Um, uh, so the question is, why can't doctors and other healthcare providers be available in evenings or weekends? Um, a oh, lot of people uh, don't have sick time and time to take off, so... Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. Uh, one of the things that's been discussed quite a lot is that a health crisis like this opens up some of the weaknesses of our system. I wish I was smart enough to answer that. Um, I do know that um, for during the crisis, people are working 12 and 16 hour days. So I, I'm not sure they would be able to do that now. Uh, this is a great discussion for how can we 
remodel care for the future uh, at times that we don't have a health crisis to make it much more um, usable to all of us because all of us are patients at one time or another. And actually, that's a great, a wonderful response. It's a great question, actually. And to some extent, I think that um, one thing all of you want to do on this call is to find out um, who is available um, evenings and weekends when you have a question or concern. And just so you have that answer for that question, what, who is available and, and what do you do? What do they recommend you do um, if there's something that comes up that you consider to be urgent? Um, I I I think that's really important for you to know that so you have that discussion with them and you can actually set up as a telehealth visit or during your telehealth visit you can ask that question um, that's really very important um, and um, then there's one uh, this will be our last question for Dr. Fleischman I have been caring for my husband with cancer for almost a year and I think I'm getting burnt out I want to look for help but I'm not sure if I should let my husband know about my stress um do you want to comment on that, Dr. Fleischman? Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> there's not one size. From my experience, there's not one size fits all. Um, sometimes a candid and loving discussion is the best way to go about it. Um, that, I think, is a question that doesn't have a general answer. And I would suggest uh, speaking with the oncology social worker at your treatment center. And if there isn't any, or if you'd like to speak from home, use uh, the cancer care services, which you heard about before. Excellent. And, and um, Ms. Pouza, uh, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I think um, a lot of caregivers struggle with the idea of um, expressing whatever their own feelings they might be having during um, their loved one's um, diagnosis. But I really think it is um, somewhat of the elephant in the room um, because, you know, most people know that this is something that's stressful for the whole family. So I think it, it can be okay to be candid in a way of saying, you know, this is a lot for me and these are the kind of things that I'm dealing with and I'm hoping that maybe getting some help will make sure that we're all taken care of in in a comprehensive way and, and in a way that we all come out of this um, better for it. So I, I do think obviously you have to be uh, mindful of how you communicate the that type of feelings, but I do think it it can be worth having that kind of conversation with your loved one and and kind of problem solve together of what uh, what might work for you to re relieve some of that stress. Excellent, thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call, and I know we could go on probably for another hour. But um, in planning a program like this, we have um, many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so I do want to go over with you some of the resources to you. I also want to thank all of you who have asked really such great questions online. And I know there are many more. So let me address the ones who are kind of with still having questions. So for those of you who still have questions and for those of you who still um, actually you know, really um, are wondering, well, who do I ask my questions of? Of course, your healthcare team is a great place to start. They, your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines. So um, it's it's not only your oncologist; it's many other oncology nurse, oncology social worker, 
um, many, many other members of that team that are uh, there for you. So basically start with that team um, and, and, and definitely talk with them. We're going to be sending out to you many resources as well. But I know you always like to go to credible resources, and you will be given the ones that were mentioned during the call. But I do want to stress with you that there are a couple of just um, – takeaway places that are really good to call. Certainly we've, we've stressed contact in cancer care. We um, are available Monday through Fridays, and you can contact our staff at, at Cancer Care, um, and our oncology social workers are happy to help you. Um, for those of you who actually um, find yourself having questions throughout the you know, 24 hours a day, you could call the American Cancer Society. They do have a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year call center. That's available for all of you as well to use. Um, and um, and they also have a website. And, of course, the National Cancer Institute has a wonderful website with lots of very credible information and a live chat feature for those of you who um, really um, want to access their website and actually um, you know, have a live chat with one of their information specialists who can really research the information for you. Um, and in terms of the services of cancer care, I think that Ms. Puzo did a wonderful job in reviewing all those services. We want you to really take advantage of them. Um, they are free, and they provide a lot of assistance to all of you. So I, I know our, our phones are ringing off the hook, but nevertheless, I just want to stress that as a resource to you. And we will also provide you other resources as well. Um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that you're alone. Although it's quite normal to sometimes feel alone, that is a normal feeling that many people have, nevertheless, we want you to tuck away the fact that you are now connected to lots of different resources. Please take advantage of them. They're there for you, um, and they're there for you to help you and, um, and to guide you, and many of them are free resources for you, so do take advantage of them. And uh, thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.